The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hello there, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Welcome to this week's show. Mergers and acquisitions. The moment when a business is sold is something that gets a lot of attention, both from the standpoint of people covering entrepreneurship and business, but also the people that are involved with it. It's a significant wealth creating event and drives a lot of activity here in the region. But a lot of people don't really understand how to get a deal done. And more to the point, I don't know how many people know how active the current merger acquisition market in D.C. is. To talk about those issues and others, I'm joined in the studio with three experts. Dan Ilsevich is CFO at CompuSearch Software. Kevin DeSanto is Managing Director of Kips DeSanto. And Annie Jones, Managing Director of the Maryland Venture Fund. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, sir. I hear a rumor. Kevin, I'll turn to you. I hear a rumor that the D.C. region right now is going through a really, really hot time in business sales. Is that so? Well, I don't know if I can debunk the rumor. Uh, this is a very, very attractive market right now when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. The D.C. region in general is home to many, many great companies, uh, mature businesses that are at the end of their life cycle, that are in the process of being acquired. Uh, many, many uh, interesting startups that are raising capital and are having a positive impact on the overall technology environment that we're in. And that market, that the companies in this region, the quality of these companies has attracted a lot of outside investors and a lot of potential buyers of these businesses. Uh, we'll get into some details as we go through this in, in specific transactions, but the high level um, sort of rationale for this is cheap capital. So the interest rates that banks and lenders are charging is at an all-time low. We have uh, equity values or public pricing for a lot of companies that are acquisitive um, at all-time highs. And we have, a uh, in this region, a particularly positive environment around government funding with the current budget and the current um, spending uh, opportunity. So we're just seeing a ton of activity across this market in both the federal and commercial technology areas. Andy, what are you seeing? I know that uh, Maryland Venture Fund, you, you are all involved in a lot of companies. And you do cyber and you've done, you do some government-related companies, but you're broader than that. What are you seeing? Uh, well, to echo on what Kevin said, um, we would add, we're, we're seeing a lot of activity, com- inbound interest into our companies. People are looking for growth as well. Yeah. Corporate balance sheets are super strong, you know, post-recession, which is now nine plus years, mm-hmm. companies have built up big cash balances. But one of the things they've struggled with is growth. So we see it in these emerging, growing venture-backed companies that are offer high growth we see the bigger companies wanting to come in and grab that and sort of put that growth onto their P&L. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's a large part of the environment. Some of the bigger companies are 
willing to buy to get into new markets to find growth because it's harder to get organic growth than perhaps it was at one time. And then there's just the supply side. As Kevin mentioned, there's a lot of money available, either from financial sponsors that have just raised outrageous amounts of private equity or venture capital funding. They need to put that money to work to earn a return. Uh, and the debt markets have been as good as they've been in a very long time. So if you're a solid company um, with good backing, it's really easy to borrow debt. Uh, we finance most of our acquisitions at CompuSearch with debt, um, but we're backed by a sort of a premier private equity firm. And so that gives the banking community, the lenders, a lot of confidence that, you know, they're putting their money into a good place. You mentioned debt. Uh, interest rates, I think, may be trending upwards. I'm thinking to myself, with the tax cuts and the changes and what's going on in the macroeconomy, do you think that we are still in a good place or... You know, put your economist hat on. Are you worried about the market at all? Dan, I'll start with you since you're living with the market as a CFO. It's really hard to kind of predict where the market's going to go. We don't worry too much about, about interest rates, quite frankly. It's more around if you're borrowing money, it's more around the terms that you're getting the money on. So sort of the leading indicators of a change in the debt markets are not that the interest rates are going up so much. It's that the, the covenants, the rules, the things you have to comply with uh, start to tighten and start to get uh, more onerous. And that's sort of the the leading indicator for us. Well, and, and how low rates had gone over the last few years, really any increase is going to be uneventful yeah. Yeah. in the short term. And so the idea that that increase is going to impact the M&A market is just not something that we believe in right now. It would take a lot of movement up in terms of the cost in order for it to have an impact on the deal flow and the pricing and the interest that we see today. Well, we'll finally get back to points where there's no more LIBOR floors in debt deals, <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah. which is something yeah. that came in after the recession, sort of a minimum interest rate that, mm -hmm. because the real interest rates were so low. It was such a deflationary so spiral. Yeah. I mean, exactly. money was, the government were literally pumping money in this system. Money mm -hmm. was virtually free, were penalized <laughs> in yeah. some ways for, for holding cash. It, very different time. It seems to me that the the tax cuts will increase or enhance the ability of corporations. There should be more money in their balance sheet. Andy, I'm wondering, with respect to fundraising, I've the change in the, the tax rules, the passive investment rules, are you seeing it? Do you think the fundraising environment might change for venture funds or private equity funds that might be easier to raise money? Because they drive a lot of activity, too. I, I don't think the macro factors are really driving it. I agree with what Dan said, though. Money is just flowing everywhere. So the fundraising environment is very positive right now. There's a lot of capital out there. Again, we mentioned corporations are looking to acquire companies for growth investors in a yield-starved world that we live in are looking for return. And you're seeing a lot of that flow into PE and venture capital because the bond market's challenging. Kevin mentioned earlier, equity valuations at an all-time high. So there's a big world of capital out there and it's flowing, looking for return. And we're seeing it on the venture and the private equity side. There's a lot of inbound interest putting capital into funds. Yeah. And I would say that the uh, one of the things that we see as a result of this environment is that larger transactions are really the focus of a lot of organizations because you've got some of these unique factors contributing to an environment where you can actually pull that off in a very efficient and effective manner. And so we're seeing lots of larger um, acquisitions or mergers of companies uh, versus what we might have seen historically. People are able to be a little bit more aggressive than they have been in the and, past. And to that point, though, one of the things that's interesting in the regulatory landscape, when you see these larger acquisitions, the 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 world is changing in terms of um, competitive uh, looks when when these big massive companies are coming together. You know, there's 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 talk of 
you know, vertical integrated companies are now getting larger scrutiny or horizontal. So that's a little scarier, you know. Um, People don't know how to handicap that. You know, the normal course was deal breakup fees and what have you. But, you know, that competitive risk of some government authority nixing a deal is out there. Um, that's really changing right now. That feels like shifting sands to me. That's a really interesting point, the, the regulatory aspects of that. And that'll be a good place for us to stop. When we come back after the break, sounds to me, gentlemen, that there is a torrent of money out there to be had. After the break, <clears throat> tell entrepreneurs how they can get in the way of that money. What's Work in Washington? We'll be right back. And a thank you to our sponsor, Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation. Their business development team can help you find the best talent, an ideal location, and the latest in market and business intelligence so you can do business successfully in the greater Washington region and Montgomery County. Your business success starts with MCEDC. Connect with them at thinkmoco.com. Thank you to our sponsor, Tedco. Tedco invests in early stage tech and life science companies. It provides resources and connections that companies need to thrive in Maryland. Tedco's mission is to discover, invest in, and help build great companies. Learn more at www.tedco.md. Welcome back to What's Working in Washington Extra. We're talking about the process of buying and selling a business, merger and acquisitions, and what's going on here in the D.C. region. Our three experts in the studio, Dan Elsevich, CFO of CompuSearch Software, Kevin DeSanto, Managing Director for Kips DeSanto, and Andy Jones, Managing Director of Maryland Venture Fund. Before the break, we started to talk about, well, what do you have to do to get in the way? But you raised something really important. I don't want to lose track of regulatory. Do you think, Andy, I'll start with you, that the current regulatory environment is could become challenging for big deals. I think it's absolutely challenging right now. I think there's a lot of question marks in DOJ or Canada Competition Authority or, or EU. All the regulatory bodies around the world are changing how they look at these big, giant transactions. And that's causing big buyers and big sellers to pause a little bit. You know, if you don't know what the regulatory landscape is going to be like, it's tough to enter into a transaction. It's also creating an opportunity as we said on the break, for private equity firms and smaller acquirers, because if these transactions are getting bottled up or pieces are having to get carved out in order to obtain approval for the transactions, it's creating opportunity for other M&A folks in the food chain. If we're taking the $10 billion, $20 billion deals out of the equation, which mm -hmm. is what we're really talking about, what does that mean for this region or for businesses, isn't it? In some, if the big deals can't happen, does that mean that more smaller deals happen or does everything gets choked? It, no, I think it means that the smaller deals do happen. Um, part of the sort of benefit of some of these larger transactions not happening is that you maintain the prospective buyer universe. Um, when two companies come together, you're losing a buyer effectively. That's the way I would think about it from a, a, a seller side of this equation. And so there is some benefit to that, but there's also benefit when these deals go through as well, because there are carve outs and divestitures of assets, whether they be 
contract vehicles or IP or other parts of a business that the uh, go-forward entity just doesn't view as core to their operations, there can be significant opportunities for other companies to step in and build their business by acquiring something that already exists. Um, so there's a lot of that activity out there and there's a lot of uh, potential deals that that fall out of it. So we see sort of both sides being beneficial to the to the community given that. We're talking about buying a business, but it would seem to me that if you have large companies that can't merge their way to becoming larger, the other way they're gonna do it is doing partnerships. It seems to would sound to me like a lot of revenue opportunities now for smaller businesses. Dan, what do you think? Uh, well, I think that's actually something that goes on all the time, particularly around the federal government. The, uh, the federal government is unique in its belief that really there's no single company that can supply what it needs. And so teaming and partnering is very, very typical when you're serving the federal government, unlike businesses that I've been in serving financial services, serving the telecom industry. If you sell something to Bank of America, they certainly don't want you also selling that same thing to Deutsche Bank. Whereas with the federal government, you've got companies that are competing on one deal that are partnering together uh, on another deal at the same time. Uh, and I think that also becomes a stimulant for basically deal making, mm -hmm. right? Because nobody Absolutely. wants to basically buy a company that they just learned about when a banker showed up with a book, right? They're more likely to be interested in buying a company that perhaps they worked with successfully on an opportunity. Which leads me to the other thing that I tagged before we came uh, in for the break. How do you get in the way? You know, how does a business get in a position where this torrent of opportunity washes over them and they, they get this opposition to sell? Kevin, I'll start with you because my guess is that you get asked that question a lot. We do. And I would piggyback on what Dan just said and what Andy said earlier. It's growth. You have Every entrepreneur out there that's thinking about the value of their business has to think about how the outside world, how an investor or a buyer would view their company as a growth channel, as a growth opportunity, as a way to stimulate the buyer or investor's rates of return, right? I mean, that's really what we're getting at here. And so the companies that we see that have a well-established growth plan and have a track record of executing against that are the ones that are getting the best valuations in this market. So from a very simple standpoint, whenever we talk to owners of businesses or folks that are in a position where they're seeking to sell, the valuation is typically dictated by what that growth trajectory is. The higher the slope, the higher the valuation. The higher the slope, the more likely it is that you have other high quality buyers that are valued very richly or at higher multiples that are coming to the table. And that's when you get these great opportunities to uh, come away from a transaction with a very exciting valuation. Totally agree with what Kevin said. I'll piggyback on, at least in the venture capital backed company world, you know, growth, happy cup customers, retained customers, you know, long life history of customers, very important. But I'll go back to the partnership point. You know, one of the tried and true kind of venture model plays is established partnerships. You're filling a need with your technology or product that the bigger companies don't have yet. They see that, they establish a partnership with you in the early days to, to kind of blow out that product or technology into the market. That leads to growth. As Dan said, you have a two-year relationship with a couple of partners, and then M&A happens naturally. One of the partners says, you're more value, valuable to me inside my organization than as a partner, and it just all happens naturally. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And as you, as you go farther up the growth curve and the companies get a bit bigger, uh, buyers will tend to look at what they refer to as the total total addressable market for what that company is doing. So not so much just the rate that I plan to grow over the next three years, but how big could I become as a business in 10 years? 
big takeaway from this segment sounds to me is don't run a business to sell it, run a business to grow it like crazy. That's exactly Absolutely. right. And make sure your customers are happy. Yeah. So you keep them forever. And right. be creative. I think if you're afraid to go out and talk to folks about partnership and you're afraid to go out and kind of get into the mix and look for different ways or different channels to grow the business, buyers are going to see that. And if it's that secret, if it's that, uh, it, it, you know, you're sort of that perfect, you just, you can't get there. You can't get enough scale. So after we take this break, we come back. Now that we've talked about the river mine that's coming and we said, you wait, you want to get in the middle of it, grow a great business. I want to talk after the break about some of the best practices, things that business founders should be thinking about once they get in the process about how to get a deal successfully done. That's what we're going to talk about. It. What's working to watch next? Or we'll be right back. To our sponsor, JLL. JLL is a leading commercial real estate service company within the Washington, D.C. metro area, serving the technology, government contracting, and professional services industries. JLL's strategy led approach and expert implementation results in cost effective and flexible real estate solutions that help their clients succeed and grow. We're back in this What's Working in Washington Extra, talking about the mergers, acquisition, market, events, and why it matters. In this final segment, we're going to talk about you've gotten yourself in a position where somebody wants to buy a company. What are some of the things you have to be really mindful of in order to succeed? I'm here in the studio with Dan Ilsevich, CFO at CompuServe Software, Kevin DeSanto, Managing Director for Kips DeSanto, and Andy Jones, Managing Director of Maryland Venture Fund. Andy, I'll throw to you. Often... If the company gets to the finish line, there are going to be some investors involved. There are investors that have financed the company. How does an entrepreneur or a founder or a management team, what do they have to be mindful of when they're managing their relationship with their investors as they get somebody interested in buying the company? Well, I think the good news to start with, investors are attracted to high growth, new, new market type opportunities. Once you take that investment from a venture capitalist or a private equity firm, um, you, you, you've really raised the bar in terms of corporate governance. You start to, as I say, you know, take the training wheels off the bicycle and start to ride the bike down the road. And that's a good prelude into ultimate M&A because you start to develop best practices in terms of financial statements, in terms of audits, in terms of rev rack, in terms of just corporate board reporting. I mean, investors enforce that. You know, I mean, Dan has a great, great set of private equity investors in his business today. You know, that, that good corporate hygiene that they enforce in that partnership, if there is an M&A event five years from now in his business, they'll be set up perfectly for it. When you say corporate hygiene, what you're talking about is having board meetings, having audited financial statements, doing the things that a buyer would expect a business to have, right? Exactly. Yeah. So when they start their diligence process, you're ready to go. It's not a fire drill. Now, Andy, I've experienced in the investment industry as well, and, and uh, actually, Dan, well, we all mm -hmm. do. Sure. Uh, when I would, even when I was doing seed stage investments uh, earliest, I was always thinking about seven years out, is this a team that could successfully sell a business? Uh, you, the, the management or the founders, they may be talking about exit from the standpoint of stars in their eyes, one day I'll get rich, but the dynamics of selling, they don't know. But have you ever made an investment in a company where you didn't have some inkling these people could get it all the way to the end? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's a journey, as they say. And sometimes the team that's involved in the earliest stages won't be necessarily the team that'll get you to the finish line. Maybe they'll be part of that team, but they'll be in different roles in the organization. You know, some people, founders are good in that zero to 20 million growth stage in the beginning, but professional management like Dan comes in at a later stage and uh, they're very good from that 20 to 100 million. So it's a journey, it's a mix. We will invest though, knowing that it might not be the same set of folks at the beginning to the end, you know, we are attracted to new technologies, high growth, brand new markets. And if we think the people are good to start with, we won't invest in bad management. That can be enough to get it going. Well, okay. I think it's particularly important if um, you're thinking about selling a company to, um, to a financial sponsor, that the management team is self-aware. Um, they know what their role is, that it's clear that they work together as a team because a potential buyer will see right through any kind of potential friction or... Uh, dissension inside the management team, right? And so if this is a first-time experience for an entrepreneur and his team about uh, to sell their business, uh, they should really spend some real quality time kind of thinking through the kind of questions they're going to be asked, making sure they're aligned on strategy, making sure they have the same view of market, uh, because a savvy buyer will come in and um, kind of try to pick that apart and figure out whether there's something in the business that the management team isn't telling them about. You know, that is a great point. I, I've done a lot of M&A over the years, as a lawyer and an investor and so forth. And I've seen more deals fall apart where the founding team or the management, their interests become dis disaligned. Mm -hmm. And they, all of a sudden, everybody's really focused on, wait a minute, why do you own 10%? I only own eight. Or I want to out and you want to stay in. So yeah, you've got it. So it sounds to me like one of the best practices we got to encourage is the time to talk about what a merger acquisition transaction would mean is not after you got in the call. It's something that you should be preparing for. So we've gone around, we said prepare and run your business as if you're running your business, but now it sounds to me like we're saying, but in the back of your mind, make sure you're ready to sell. But isn't it the right thing to do to run your business like a professional institutional owner would want to? I think part of yeah. having a great management team is that you understand corporate hygiene is not just a preparation for sale, but it's the way to optimize your business. Um, it's the way to protect your intellectual property. It's the way to make sure that you're not focused on cleaning things up, but you're focused on winning the next deal. And so I think it works to think about that in the context of how you run your business day to day. It's ultimately very beneficial in the context of a sale transaction or an investment, but we should all be thinking that way. We should want to own a business the same way that a, a an institutional. Exactly. Would. And I would piggyback, though, the second you take institutional capital, whether it's venture capital or private equity, these are typically 10-year partnerships. Mm -hmm. They have a limited life cycle, and they are going to need an exit at some point. So you're don't, take, <laughs> don't take their money if you're never prepared to sell your business because you are on the clock, as you say, Kevin. Yeah. All right. So I'm an entrepreneur or CEO. And I've gotten an unsolicited offer to buy my company. Kevin, what do I do next? Uh, call me. Or Dan or Andy. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, 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 or anybody that can help you, you think through, through what to do in response to that. And what because, are some of the things I need to think through? Well, um, th there's, there's probably two key areas. One is what information have you provided to this potential buyer investor? How, um, how, 
close to reality as, is that? Hopefully as little as possible. As close to reality as possible, yeah, right. where you want to provide as little information as possible in these advanced discussions right. or in the early stage of these discussions. Because, because most deals fall apart. Right. And you have to shape what the view is to be consistent with what they're going to find in their overall due diligence. Okay. And that is often a very disconnected concept. People have a presentation that shows their business, but when you get under the covers and look at it, you say, well, it's it's everything but that. Well, And that's a that's a real challenge for people from a credibility right. standpoint, so you have a hard time getting those deals done. Also, right. a guy like Kevin, you get an unsolicited offer from a, from a business, you know, Kevin, a good banker, um, would know the 10 competitors of that, that company, and you might not know them as well. And if that un- offer is not a really a market value offer, maybe you decide, you and your board decide to run a process where we're actually going to go to these 10 qualified buyers that would have an interest in your business. I thought mm-hmm. you guys were going to say that the most important thing was to have somebody tell you what your business was worth, because if you're growing your business... You don't well. That, I mean, right? that that's I mean, my point right there. The okay. the market will tell you what your business is worth, but if that first offer is an under market price, a guy like Kevin can help go to the rest of the market and obtain a market price yeah, well, for you at the end of the day. I think there's a couple of takeaways that I think about when I look at it from this perspective. One is most successful entrepreneurs are successful because they're good at building a business and understanding their market and working well with customers. If they haven't actually been through an exit, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And so the most important thing from that perspective is to go get a banker that you can trust and go get an attorney. That's basically a deal attorney that you can trust. And those are your two really key outside advisors to help you sort of understand what's going on, to set the expectations with you and your management team on what to expect as you kind of go through the process. And then the second point is um, if you're not committed to selling your business at a market price, you should probably come to that conclusion early rather than sort of playing with potential buyers. Yeah, I had recently was exposed uh, to an entrepreneur I met who was looking for advice, very early company with $500,000 revenue. And I said, how much do you think your business is worth? And he said, $75 million, which is only <laughs> about $72 million more than fair right. market value. Right. And I thought to myself, did somebody tell you that or did you just make that up? And you don't be making stuff up in an M&A deal. That's what I'm what I'm hearing is you don't want to go in there and BS your way through it. You're not going to succeed. Not at all. And yeah. that has ramifications that are far reaching because this is a small community. Most of the investors know each other. Most of the uh, financing sources know each other. Most of the executives know each other. So it, it's, it's just not an area that you want to take lightly. Um, the other piece of this is that competition drives value. And so yep. when you think about exiting, um, one offer is great, but two or three allows you to control your destiny. It allows you to have a higher probability of success in the effort that goes into this. These things take months, um, sometimes a year to accomplish. So you're not just going to sort of skirt through it and show up on the other side, um, you know, with a, a bag of money in without putting the effort into it or without all of the work that goes into it. It just has to happen. So the conclusion to this is that merger and acquisition selling a business is not an event that happens in a moment in time, it's the culmination of a eight-year journey Absolutely. all the way along. Great way yep. to think about it. I think it's great advice for all the entrepreneurs and CEOs that are trying to build value for themselves and their shareholders. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for taking the time today. It was just terrific. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thanks. That was What's Working in Washington Extra, unpacking the dynamics of the regional M&A market and how you can get in the way of a big river of money with Dan Elsevich, CFO of CompuServe Software, Kevin DeSanto, Managing Director of Kips DeSanto, and Andy Jones, Managing Director of Maryland Venture Fund.
Thank you for joining us on What's Working in Washington. A special thank you to our sponsors, Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation, JLL, and Ted Co. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.